Hello, everybody, and welcome to Art Drama Llama, where we look beyond the galleries and dish on the art world's gossip, rivalries, and eccentricity. My name is Sianja. My name is Manchi. And I'm Vartika. And today we're going to look beyond one of the largest art frauds in U.S. history. I'm excited. Yeah. So fitting into our art heist theme, but slightly taking a little bit of a spin on it to talk about art fraud. And I want to preface this episode by saying I watched a Netflix documentary called Made You Look, a true story about fake art on Netflix. Manchi, I hate you. Why? Because I was going to do that. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Ah, okay. Honor. It's like it's, it takes place in New York, right? It takes place in New York. Yeah, um, it's literally, it's okay. It's a good one. I'll allow yeah. it. All right. Awesome. Okay. So Sianja knows. So Tika, this will be you for you in the audience. Um, but okay. this documentary, ins- well, I wouldn't say inspire this episode, more like we really base it off the episode on the documentary. But I really recommend everyone watch it. In fact, I think maybe we have a post, we, we have a like a watch party uh, between the three of us as well, because it is really a well shot documentary. We're just going to briefly summarize the details of what happened. But there are real humans behind the story. And I think the documentary does a really great job at letting them speak for themselves. And also some of the editing when they interview different people on their perspective of what happened is just chef's kiss. Brilliant. <laughs> Made me laugh. I'm, I'm kind of glad you did this episode though. Oh, really? Because there's one specific part where I kind of want like My your mind. insights. Yeah. I feel like you know which one. Yes, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. I won't get there. So our story really starts with the Nodler Gallery, which suddenly closed its doors in 2011 after its director of many, many years, Anne Freeman, resigned in 2009. And it was beginning to leak in the news that they closed because of art fraud. So for those of us who don't know what the art, who don't know what the Nodler is, like I didn't know what the Nodler was, It was an art gallery that was founded in 1846, and it was also not just any art gallery. It was one of the oldest commercial art galleries in the U.S. and one of the most revered. Like, this was it. This was the institution. When we talk about capital I institution, the Noller was that in the art world. And they specialized in old master's work and worked a lot with customers um, like Collis Collis P. Huntington, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Henry O. Havemeyer, William Rockefeller, Walter Chrysler, John Jacob Astor, Andrew Mellon, J.P. Morgan, Henry Clay Frick, you know the likes, um, those very, very rich and famous old men from back in the day. And they also worked with a lot of institutions like the Met, the Louvre, and the Tate Gallery in London. So, revered institution. And a little bit more about some of the back history for them. They're actually involved in a few Nazi lawsuits. Um, They were found to be involved in several high profile lawsuits involving Nazi looted art, including a Matisse that was confiscated by the Nazis in 1941 from the Rosenberg family, which Nodler acquired in 1954 and was eventually donated to the Seattle Art Museum in 1996 by Virginia apprentice Lodell. And there was also an El Greco that was seized by the Gaspado in 1944 called The Portrait of a Gentleman, 
um, that was listed in their catalogs, in the Nodler catalogs, and then was bought and, and was listed in the Nodler's catalogs. So, you know, a little bit dicey there, selling some Nazi artworks. Good news is that both paintings were actually restituted to their rightful owners after the lawsuits were filed. And in 2003, the Springfield Library and Museum Association sued the Nodler for loss of a $3 million painting that it had returned to the museum in Italy as a war loot. So, you know, they deal with some shady folks. On top of that, they were also involved in secret sales by the Soviet government uh, of works from the Russian Imperial Collection in the 1920s and 30s. So, worked with Nazis, worked with the Soviet government to sell their ancient paintings. Um, a little bit of a sketchy history there. And then the Noller actually changed ownership in 1971 and was sold to Arma, Armand Hammer, which if you guys remember, we talked about in a previous ep episode. And oh, this is cannibal. also Army Hammer's ancestor. <laughs> Army Hammer's uh, ancestor. And like Sianja was alluding to, the one with some sketchy, sketchy personal life issues. Guys, I recently watched Call Me By Your Name and that's all I could think about. Yeah, it's yeah, that's him. That this is his great grandfather. <laughs> Dude, okay. Wait, he's in Call Me by Your Name. Call yes. Me. Yeah. Oh, I just watched Death on the Nile. He's also in that. Yeah, wow. that he was in. Um, well, now I can't remember what else he was in. Um, apparently, like his whole family, like his dad, his grandfather, like they're messed up people. I mean, I'm not surprised. If you're yeah, like his, like his whole family has a history of like just being myself. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I think being the child of a tycoon just does that to you sometimes. The, megno, the megalomania gets to you. <laughs> yeah. So the Nodler was then sold to Armand Hammer in 1971 and then eventually passed on to his grandson, Michael Armand Hammer, which is where our story kind of starts. Michael Armand Hammer hires Anne Freeman, who eventually becomes the director of the Nodler. And the Nodler also starts moving away from the old master's works and towards American abstract expressionism or Abex art. And this is works by Motherwell, Pollock, Rothko, de Kooning, um, like very classic modern American artists. And for just to paint a picture, this is like the paintings of random paint slatters or of two blocks of paint stacked up on top of each other. Motherwell painted these black and white paintings that were just black strokes on a white canvas. Um, and also it's kind of important to note that with Abex paintings, their prices really started going crazy in 1998 and began to sell 10 times at what their previous prices were. So it's a bit of a hotbed. You've got an art gallery that is I would say capable of doing shady things as I think most art galleries are capable of. You've got your director, Anne Friedman, and you've got them pivoting to this incredibly profitable art era of Avex works. So um, the setup, what exactly happens? So Anne Friedman, who we mentioned was a director at the Nodler, during her time there, she comes into contact with a Glafira Rosales, who is what we know to be a Long Island art dealer. And they, she comes to know Glafira 
1995 when another Nodler employee introduces Anne Friedman to Glafira and says that this friend of his has a Rothko, that Glafira has a Rothko. And I think this is where we kind of take a little bit of a break and talk about Rothko. Rothko is a painter where it's just a block of paint on top of another block of paint. And for some reason, people go crazy over it. And I'll be honest, I really like Rothko's as well, because I think sometimes his color combination, you can just stand there and get really drawn in by just the juxtaposition of colors. And I think, I mean, that's why paintings kind of draw you in, right? Like a lot of times it's just the color play. And I think he is a master at that. So Rothko's become really, really popular during this time period. And Glyphera says she has a Rothko. So she comes into the gallery with a Rothko package. And if I may say so myself, it's a very stunning piece. It was a dark blue square on top with a bright white square below it, all juxtaposed against a mustard yellow background. And Sandra, if I may employ you, this is where like color theory comes into play, right? You've got- Ooh, hold on. <laughs> you may have to fire me depending on the question. What? You said you, you would want to employ me, so I my comeback was. Oh no no sorry. I implore you to 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 talk a little bit more about those colors. <sighs> okay, uh, what's your question? Okay, so I'll see. Aren't they? Aren't, isn't the dark blue, the bright wet red, mustard yellow? Like yellow and blue are complementary colors, right? No, ma'am. No. Not. No. Oh, it's yeah. They're primary colors. Oh, whoops. <laughs> I always forget it's blue and orange that are complementary. Yes, yes. Wow, how can I be talking about art history and not even know my complementary colors? I really thought you were going to hit me with a harder question. Oh, no, yeah, no. I was, I was literally shaking. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to tell them I'm a fraud. <laughs> no, it's all good. But I think, but all three of them are primary colors, right? Red, blue, and yellow. Yes, yeah, so I think the combination of the three is quite striking when even when it's just the three of them as blocks and a background. Yeah. So really pretty Rothko. Um, and Glofira claims that she has a client in Mexico whose family was from Europe. And the family had brought these paintings from Alfonso Osorio, who was a patron of Pollock's in the 50s and 60s. And now the son whose family had purchased these uh, paintings, wants to sell them as soon as possible, regardless of price, because he doesn't care about money, apparently. So that's the story of how Glafira has come across all of these beautiful abstract expressionisms, abstract expressionist works, including this Rothko that she's showing Anne Freeman. And I think it's kind of at this point of the story that you guys might be asking, if we're all setting this up towards an art fraud, then we're probably heading down the path that Glafira is giving Anne some hella fake works. And so what about provenance? How can an art gallery director possibly be fooled by fake pieces if there wasn't any sort of provenance there? And you guys might say, what exactly is provenance? So in the art world, provenance is essentially tracing back this work to prove that it was actually painted by this, by this painter. And usually it's like a trail of ownership so that at the very end you can see that, oh, 
this person had bought this painting or was gifted this painting or somehow acquired this painting from the artists themselves. And that's how we prove that it's actually a Rothko piece or actually a Rothko or actually a Pollock piece. And so for Glyphira, it's at this point of the meeting, she says that the sister might have provenance papers, but they also might have been destroyed. And we should really highlight that typically during this time, provenance is hard especially because the addicts artists were often giving paintings away or wealthy collectors like Walter Chrysler or like the others were paying them at extremely cheap prices all in cash to get these paintings. And so it's a little bit tough to tell sometimes if this painting is legit. And also this is a little bit prior to the time when they actually started using scientific methods to determine whether or not pieces had the right paint or if the fabric was old enough to even come from a specific time period. So, but at the very least, they would actually trace provenance back by checking old photographs of the painter's salute of the painter's studio to see if they could spot the pieces there. And the third piece is galleries would actually rely on something called a catalog raisonné, which is the entire known catalog of an artist's work. And they would compile these based off of photographs they've seen, or if there are pieces in private collections that have good provenance, or in our case, if you hire a Rothko expert who is in charge of the catalog resume, you ask them, hey, check out this Rothko. Do you think it is a Rothko itself? And the expert will take a look and say, in this case, that yes, it actually is a Rothko. Uh, so Anne had hired David Ampham, who is a Rothko expert, who was hired by the National Gallery of Art and the Rothko family to compile a Rothko catalog raisonné. And he came, looked at it, and said, hey, it is a Rothko. So now this piece that Glafira is telling Anne is a Rothko is now put into the official catalog of Rothko works. And the art world believes that it's a Rothko piece. And so Anne continues to buy works from Glyphira from a many range of different artists. And she does keep having them validated by art experts in the field who all agree that these are previously unseen works of art from these Abex artists. And she even keeps a Motherwell painting for herself. And this Motherwell painting was actually confirmed by the son to be a Motherwell painting. So, you know, like I don't know how much more proof you can kind of get during this time period for proving provenance, proving that these are legitimate art, works of art. And I really also want to emphasize that Anne Freeman did everything she can to get validation from the experts. And all the experts were saying that these paintings were authentic. There's actually written documentation of experts with legitimate credentials saying that these are authentic paintings. And one of the Rothko paintings she sold was to Domenico de Sol, who is currently the chairman of Tom Ford International, but was previously the chairman of Sotheby's and previously the president and CEO of Gucci. So this Rothko that she sold, Domenico de Sol, was even put on display by Ernst Bayer, who was a very well-known art dealer in an exhibition called the Rothko Rooms and given its own wall. So just imagine, these fakes are so amazing that the entire community of experts are saying, hey, they're legit. And they're actually being placed in museums as legitimate pieces by these artists. So 
just to give the picture that like pretty much in my opinion, every expert in the world at this point was fooled by these fake works that Glafira was selling. So is Glafira painting this or uh, like who's who's doing this? What's what's happening here? Yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? Because you're like, how can there be a painter who paints all of these different artists work so well that people actually recognize them as legitimate works of art? Kind of crazy, right? So the answer is there's actually very little information. But what we do know is that Glafira has experience in art dealing, but and her boyfriend at the time, Jose Carlos Langanieros Diaz, had also experience in art dealing and document forging. But the two of them are actually not the painters. They were just the ones kind of involved in um, the communications of the con of like making sure Anne Freeman was buying into it, being legitimate art dealers. The actual painter himself was a math professor living in Queens called Pei Shintian. And we actually know very, very little about him because he pretty much fled to China the moment he figured out that Glafira and the Noller were being investigated by the FBI. So he left and hasn't been extradited back to the US. What we also know is that he used to be an artist in China who got some training in the US at the Art Student League. And it was actually a rather well-known school that had Calder, Pollock, and Ai Weiwei all as students. And we did an episode over Ai Weiwei. Um, and so he painted all of these different works while Bergantinos would actually make the paintings look old. And that was how the three of them were on this con together and producing essentially masterworks from a shed in Queens, which is kind of crazy, right? And this guy was a math professor at the very end of it. I kind of want to hear if like any of the people had any comments on like all the other students. Yeah, like if if specifically, I yeah, 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 specifically him. I want to because he's so like radical and like down with the government. I so I want to see like what he would say about like a scam like this. Yeah, and I think the this watch him watch him before it. He's like, yeah, stick it to the rich people. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised to be honest. You know, I, I think the other part of this whole thing, which we can talk a little bit more at the end, is it sort of raises the question of like, you know, these paintings were revered and put on display and seen as beautiful masterworks when it was thought to be painted by somebody famous, but the moment they figured out they were fakes, all of a sudden they lose all their value. And the question is like, well, does that mean we put more stock in sort of the name of the painter than we actually do in the beauty and the technique of the work? Um, but that's something we can talk about later. And I think that's actually something that Ai Weiwei himself will probably raise if I may say so myself. <laughs> but I think that's like a larger point about the art world that I think is particularly interesting and something that a radical um, painter like Ai Weiwei himself would gravitate towards. Tika, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about like all that could happen and like how everything is connected. And we talk about how everything is connected often. Like, I don't know. I 
before hearing about this, I would have never thought that like, oh, all of this was going on. But I mean, I don't know. That's like the thing. You, there's so much going on in the world that we just don't know about. And then one day it just comes out, you know, <laughs> like Netflix documentaries and stuff. So Yeah, like you would think that at some point in art history that we have learned about one of the largest art frauds in the U.S. that happened mm-hmm. not too long ago, right? Like 2011, that would be the year before we would have graduated. So... 2011? Yeah. That would have been when oh, we were still in middle school. Yeah, a year before we graduated middle school. Oh, you didn't say middle school. You just said graduated. Yeah. Didn't, didn't imply what age we are. <laughs> Mitchie, I'm pretty sure our listeners know by this point <laughs> our approximate age. Yeah. Well, speaking of age... Let's continue on with the story and talk about what happened. Um, so over the next 10 years, so between 1995 and onwards, the Nolers sold over 60 paintings that were fake at an estimated total value of $80 million, which is insane if you think about it, that they were able to make $80 million over essentially nothing. So what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Well, in 2003, a Goldman Sachs ex- executive called Jack Levi wanted to buy a Pollock from the Nodler, but under the condition that it had to pass an evaluation by the IFAR, the International Foundation for Art Research, and that if he didn't, he would get his money back. So the IFAR at this point is sort of a starting blossoming art institution that does do more in-depth research on different paintings provenance and just general art history research. And so the IFRA, under a lot of scrutiny and much better research practice than I think were available in the late 1990s, determined that the painting, the Pollock, was a fake. And so the NOLA refunded, but then put the Pollock back up for sale. And when it was previously sold to Jack Levi at 2 million, it was actually priced now for 11 million though it was never actually sold. And this is kind of the starting incident. So we find out that one painting was a fake. And over time, all these different paintings that the Noller was putting up for sale were coming back as fraud under forensics research. So this is like taking a sample of the paint and comparing it against a sample of the paint from a legitimate known artwork by the artist and seeing if the chemicals have changed the same way. Or looking at the canvas and looking at if that's been aging the same way as other canvases. And looking at, oh, was this paint with this chemical property available at the time of the painting? So that type of forensic research is now being more employed. However, Anne put up a lot of resistance against those results saying that they can't be trusted, We don't really know if that's true or not and stuff like that. And in 2011, one of the other experts that Anne's been working with to sort of determine whether or not these paintings are real or frauds goes to the FBI. And then all of a sudden we have an art investigation on our hands. And following that, you have a Belgian hedge fund manager, Pierre Lagrange, who's suing the gallery in relation to a work he bought um, that was attributed to a Pollock 
Domenico da Sol that we've mentioned earlier and his wife Eleanor claimed that the gallery had sold them a fake Rothko, the beautiful one with a blue block on top, a red block on the bottom, all on a mustard yellow background. They were saying that was a fake that was sold to them as well, which of course it was, but it was also being displayed in one of the largest in one of in a museum at an exhibition called the Rothko Room. And following that, Wall Street executive John D. Howard also sued Noller and Anne Freeman in 2011, saying that one of the Duke Kooning paintings he bought was a fake. And pretty much all of these lawsuits with Anne Freeman were settled out of court. And it comes out during these cases that if the Noller hadn't been selling these fakes, they would have been millions of dollars in debt. And at the very end of all of this, when the sentence comes down, Glafira was sentenced to a few months in jail and had to restitute the 80 million um, that basically she swindled out of people, but she received a lenience due to her cooperation with the US government. Her boyfriend, Bergantinos, left for Spain and Spain is refusing US extradition for him. And Anne Friedman wasn't charged with anything. And she actually runs an art gallery in New York called Friedman Art as of today. So that's the story of the art fraud. And I have a few questions for you guys. The first one being, do you think Anne Friedman was in on it? Or do you think the Nodler accounting team was in on it, right? I feel that like maybe at first she wasn't, but she must have had to like caught on later on, you know? Yeah. I mean, she was making a lot of money from these paintings as well, selling them. Yeah. Do you think she made 10 million in and just commission fees. Beautiful. Yeah. Queen. <laughs> but her reputation is now besmirched by the entire community. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. She didn't really, I, I feel like she didn't really face any real repercussions though. Yeah, she has like public humiliation, but she's still employed. She got to keep that money essentially. That's true. That's and true. like she's not in jail that's she true. still and she can still go around like go grocery shopping and stuff yeah and pretty much nobody would recognize her yeah tika what do you think i mean i agree there she probably knew at least something or it had like even if she didn't know everything she probably had some kind of feeling about it there's, yeah, I, I think she was also in on it. See, I don't know if she was in on it. Because if you watch a documentary and you hear her talk about it, she's either a very convincing artist, uh, she's either a very convincing actress, or she really wasn't in on it. But I think there were a lot of different factors weighing on her that could have made her turn a blind eye. And one of them is the fact that well i think one of the big things that would have validated my opinion that these paintings were real were if pretty much all the leading experts of these artists themselves were validating that these artworks are real you know like if the fact that i go to the most well-known rothko artist the most well-known pollock the well most well-known motherwell experts and said hey can you validate these for me and they all like yeah i validate them and i'm going to add them to the catalog resume then I feel like that's a lot of validation. That's like, well, yeah, then these must be legit. And I'm going to keep believing that these are legit. Um, and I think the other part was it must be really difficult 
to be running an art gallery and have to be constantly producing and finding new works of art that you can buy at a low price and then come back around and sell at a much higher price. Like, I think that's a lot of pressure to be under and to have to maintain that. So I think those two kind of combined makes me think it's a bit of a perfect storm for her to actually fall for the con and keep believing in it. I guess there's may not have known and unless yeah she's a very good uh con artist or actress whatever I kind of don't have a strong opinion just because of how like just from my perspective right I'm not speaking for everybody but just like how money and the value of things are all kind of relevant to me and it's also not like, I don't know, she, like, people were, like, pulling their savings out on this thing or anything. So I, I don't know. I don't really feel anything strong. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And I guess at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if she was in on it or not. Yeah. Like, this one's going to blow up, guys. Like, yeah. And take us with it. So. <laughs> um, and then my second question for everybody is, how do we feel that these fakes were so good that the entire world thought they were beautiful, but now are spurned because they're not real? Because Dude, I love hearing stories like that. Like, <laughs> if things were, like, if the fake was so good, I'm kind of like, where's the artist? They need to, like, be making their own things. They clearly have the talent. It's like when a criminal is so good, the, like, FBI or, like, the police hire them. Yeah, to be a consultant. Yeah. Um, catch other bad guys. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But I mean, I think art is even a little bit different because it's like this, it's, it's, I think with a lot of artistic things, it's one thing to play or remake or sing a song, a painting, a piece that somebody composed, made, um, but it's quite another one to make your own, right? It kind of requires a level of, of a statement you want to make, you know? So I think it's different to have great art skills and, and then quite another thing to have enough vision to put something that people have a reaction to. Yeah, okay, I see your point. But I mean, I think that like, like, do you think if you had a fake Rothko, but everyone that looked at it thought it was real, like, do you think, do you think you would be able to live with that? I guess it's like the same question. <laughs> I guess we went full circle back on the, <laughs> back on the crystal question. <laughs> like, does it matter that it's a fake crystal if it looks like a legitimate crystal? <laughs> I think it's a, I think that's different because the whole Lapis Lazuli argument is like, that's like a real thing that came from the earth, you know? <laughs> but this is a painting that somebody made uh okay if i bought a painting and it was a fake but it had this whole crazy story to it i feel like it would be valuable i'd still hang it up i'd be like guys when i hear this crazy fucking story that's true but that's like yeah. value in the story but would you yeah but if... okay but if i just like bought some random painting right and it yep. turned out to be a fake yeah i'd be a little upset based on how much i spent right if i thought if I felt that it wasn't that much, I'd be like, shit, 
all right but if it was like a lot of money yeah i'd be upset yeah but would you do you think he would purposely buy like a fake piece that looks so much like a real piece oh yeah definitely i mean we do it all the time now for like less quality yeah i think that's the curious part right it's like so many people are willing to buy like paper replications of famous pieces but they're somehow not willing to buy like a version that looks identical to it but actually is fake right does that make sense like we're willing to buy something that obviously looks like it's replicated from the real one like we want to buy a starry night tote bag or a starry night wall poster that don't have the right dimensions or something else but well we I, I think it's one. i think it's because like you're in the know you know like you're part of it like you're like you know what i mean like you're participating in like the fakeness of it all mm. versus being tricked into it right right or it seems like you're trying to trick the world into thinking you have a real yeah but you really have a fake uh-huh interesting that's an interesting perspective i guess you're well, right yeah also it's like uh i feel like it's like less condescending like haha you're so stupid i made you buy a fake versus like i know it's a fake you know it's a fake we both know it's a fake and i still got it anyway yeah then it just feels like i'm i'm like representing right or i'm like wearing merch that has classic art paintings on it yeah that's true so what are your thoughts on the fact that like because it was not painted by rothko himself or pollock himself that these painting values just dropped right because the technical like you said sandra the technical skill is there i mean then it becomes about like who it's by that's that's like the more um important thing in that case but do we really like care so much about the name of the painting or should we care more about the technical ability and the beauty of the painting itself I guess it depends on the person, right? Like it's kind of what we were, sort of what we were just talking about. Like, is it real or fake? Um, depends on the ability. So Tika, what, what would you say? Are you a person who cares about the beauty and the technical side of the, or the aesthetic, or do you care more so about the name? I mean, if I'm spending the money, then I would want like the real thing. Well, these two paintings are not going to be worth the same uh i think it would just depend like i don't know if i would go by like no offense to people who who like these artists but i don't know like how willing i would be to go buy a rothko or a pollock if i bought them it would be for the name but I also think it depends I, on where you're putting them because I wouldn't really want yeah. that in my house. I but I would love that in like an office. Yeah, right. it's more office suited. I don't think my house would, or I guess my future home, what I imagine it to be. I don't think the vibe would fit. <laughs> well, take the vibe away from it. Like if you had the choice between a real Da Vinci for like several millions of dollars versus an exact replica for maybe like a few hundred or maybe a few thousand dollars like does i mean if it's a da vinci replica 
like if I had the money to spend, if I had like se- several million dollars, I might as well buy the real thing. Yeah, I mean, take but it, take since it, I don't, then you'll you're you're okay. With obviously, it. I'll yeah, obviously I'll get the replica. Hmm. hmm, that's very interesting, right? Because at the end of the day, it just becomes are are we really willing to pay a premium on these art pieces just because it's the original artist? Like, are we essentially? I- I only see wanting to pay for the original and such a high price if the artist is still alive. If it's if they're dead, I I don't think it matters. <laughs> so you're saying if it's a dead if if the artists are dead, you're more you're equally willing to buy a replica of their work. Yeah, because it's like well they're dead. I'm not helping them in any way. Oh, I see. Interesting. Directly, but yeah. if they're alive, I'm like yeah, I'll buy the real thing because it's it's helping you like yeah now that's a very interesting perspective because i was going to argue the opposite in terms of like well the old i can see why dead artist paintings are probably worth more because they'll never make anymore versus if they're alive then they'll probably keep making more paintings which means that the value of them because there's infinite supply at the moment and the demand is the same then the price of their paintings are must be lower yeah it's like musical artists too like if they're older um and you know they're not producing any more albums or they're not like uh printing any more of their albums you go for the old ones get those first then get the newer ones um or like if they're still alive like you'd still want to try to go for the older ones first just because like you don't know when they'll stop printing them i mean they might not stop printing them but yeah, you know? no. yeah, yeah. It's it's just the question of supply and demand. But Sandra, I think your perspective is particularly interesting because Tika and I are thinking about it in terms of supply and demand. But you're actually thinking of it, I guess, in a more much more human. Yeah, I'm thinking of the human. Yeah. <laughs> instead of my fucking bank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is which is a interesting perspective, and I think you're absolutely right. Like we should be. Yeah, thinking. like unless I knew. Okay. Unless I knew like they had a family and like an estate and that estate went and helped other things. You know, if I knew like after if I knew my money was going to something productive, I would still buy the original if the artist was already dead. Yeah. yeah. But if not, then I'm like, I don't see the point. Yeah. Because okay, and also this is just the way that like artwork works. Like traditionally, like once somebody buys it from you, that's it. If yeah. they were to sell it again that money that commission that's the sellers nothing goes to you yeah so it's so that's the thing why these like art circles want these paintings to be so like expensive because it's an investment for the the buyer not the artist you know what I mean right exactly and obviously if like the artist paintings are high value while they're alive everything they make afterwards you know everybody's gonna want to buy them at whatever price the artist sets it yeah. But once it leaves the artist like ownership, that's it. Like nothing like the artist cannot benefit from it again. Yeah. Which yeah. is which is why I say again, I would rather buy the original because and directly from the artist because it directly helps them. Yeah, it feeds them, it keeps them sustained and keeps mm-hmm. them alive. Yeah. I feel like my argument just was very reminiscent of or like what I said was very reminiscent of what I was saying during the lapis lazuli. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> I so even... maybe I am just materialistic. I don't know. <laughs> Tika, I didn't even realize it that at the end of the episode we would get to the lapis lazuli point again. <laughs> Honestly, who knew that that freaking rock would have such an overshadowing impact on everything we've said since? <laughs> Yeah. The rock can be fake, but not your friendship. <laughs> Thank you, Sandra. That's very true. You're welcome. You're welcome. That was deep. <laughs> yeah, that was real deep. Well, on that note, speaking of deep things, I think we had a pretty good deep conversation. Um, just as a recap for this episode, we talk about one of the largest art frauds that happened in U.S. history regarding the Nodler and the fact that they were selling a lot of fake paintings for a lot of years for a lot of money. Um, and and we talked about some after effects that happened with it and some of the deeper implications of what this means uh, for art and the value of art. So I hope I hope you guys found it an interesting episode. Yep. And if you have any stories that you would like us to cover, please email us at artdramalama at gmail.com. You should also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon, where our handles are all at artdramalama. And lastly, thank you for joining us, and we hope we can continue looking beyond the galleries with y'all next time. Bye, llamas. Bye. Bye.